Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. A very warm welcome to episode 14 of my podcast, whether you are a new or returning listener. And thank you for all your feedback on the previous episode. It was lovely to hear that so many of you enjoyed my conversation with Aidan the Knitting Monk. For new listeners, I'm Meg and I'm based in London in the UK. In my podcast, I talk about my love of making and interest in working with natural materials. But I also ponder about the sustainability issues that these acts of making can give rise to, as well as the psychology that drives my making. You can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg, aka Mrs M, and that is with hyphen between each word. As always, I will link this information and anything I mention in this podcast in the show notes, which are available on my website, mrsmscuriositycabinet.com, or in the Ravelry group of the same name. So what do I have in store today? It's been a while since I last spoke about my making projects, as it has been a busy time of exploring, making, learning, experimenting and working on some projects behind the scene. As I don't tend to ramble on about everything I've done, I've picked a few projects that reflect common themes in my making practice. I'll be kicking off with some thoughts on natural shades, prompted by a recent knit-along I took part in. I'll also talk about my current trouser-making efforts, as well as some of the delights of my seasonal foraging, and I will finish up by sharing some inspiring gems. So, I hope you are settled in with a making project and a mug or glass of something tasty, and let's begin. I recently took part in the Nature's Shade Along organised by Louise Scully of Knit British. I rarely participate in make-alongs as I prefer to focus my making on things that will serve me, my wardrobe and my home and like to avoid being caught up in making something that I don't really want or need. That said, anybody who follows this podcast, or me on Instagram or Ravelry, will know that I have a soft spot for natural shades. Also, Louise always runs a cracking make-along. This was in fact the second nature's shade-along, and many of us knitters and crocheters had so much fun last time round that we welcomed its return. Not just for the jolly banter, but also because of the eye-opening inspiration the range of natural shades and the beauty and playfulness that we could experience with these unassuming shades of grey, cream, fawn and brown. This make-along was slightly different than the last one. There were two categories. Louise allowed projects that were 100% natural shades or also projects that were mostly natural shades with up to 25% of dyed colour. This was a clever addition. One of the things that some of us knitters and crocheters discovered from the first make-along was that a single colour added to a palette of natural shades really sings. Maylin, aka Blythe Spirit on Ravelry or Blythe Spirit 4 on Instagram, uses this principle with great results, like her Canach sweater and more recently her Nature's Shade Bresse sweater. I had quite a bit of Jameson and Smith's Shetland Supreme jumper weight left on a cone I'd used to make a sweater and also some balls of contrasting natural shades. I therefore decided to make Ella Gordon's Hap Cowl. This is a garter-stitch cowl that incorporates the wavy lace pattern often found in Shetland haps. For those who are new to knitting or the podcast, a hap is a large practical shawl. Although I often knit with natural shades, I don't tend to make multicoloured projects that often. That said, this cowl will make a super addition to my wardrobe. 
As it incorporates five shades from natural shade black, aka the darkest of brown, through fawns with a hint of warm grey, it will work very well with all the natural shades in my wardrobe, as well as many of the russet, ochre and rose knits. Louise's Nature Shades make-alongs, along with her swatch-alongs and wall explorer projects, have been a great way to encourage us to rediscover the beauty of undyed yarns. Aesthetics are ultimately always personal, but I love the shades and textures available from undyed wool. What is more, from an environmental perspective, they also tick some boxes for me. Working out the environmental impact of different fibres over their lifetime is an involved process, and the results will vary depending on what aspect I am assessing – land usage, water usage, air pollution, water pollution, end-of-life disposal, the list goes on. There are some clear impacts that many of us know about. For example, cotton is very water-intensive to grow. Polyester doesn't involve that much water in its production, but it doesn't decay in landfill and aggravates the growing microplastic pollution problem we're experiencing. Wool generally scores better than cotton, even though it still involves water usage in the scouring process. One of the environmental advantages of natural shades of wool and other protein fibres is that even though they aren't impact-free, they miss out a whole step that is typically included in the production process of fibres. Dyeing involves chemicals, energy and water usage, and a degree of dye waste. So, by enjoying shades in their natural state, even if they've been sorted and blended for consistency at the milling stage, a whole suite of impacts is instantly cut out. Now, I'm not mentioning this to make anybody feel guilty about liking colour, about buying dyed yarns or making a living out of dyeing. I love burnished coppers and warm ochres that colour my life. Aside from being beautiful, they have an amazing effect on my mood, especially during the dreary months. That said, by occasionally opting for a natural shade rather than a colour, there is a minor reduction in the overall footprint of my life. Another sustainability advantage of natural shades is that it means certain resources that would otherwise go to waste are being used. In many fibre markets, non-white animal fibre is considered inferior as it doesn't provide a blank canvas for dye, i.e. it's not as commercially useful for mainstream demands. As a result, grey, fawn and brown fibres attract a lower price at market, one that is sometimes so pitiful that it costs farmers to shear and sell their flock's fleeces. Stories about farmers burying or burning fleece are not uncommon, which is an appalling waste of resources. Appreciating natural shades of fleece means there is more scope for farmers to realise the value of a fibre resource that grows regardless of what mainstream market demands. Also, smaller producers may just about be able to shoulder the cost of scouring and spinning their wool, but not the added cost of dyeing. It may seem a little odd to talk about economic issues in the context of my sustainability musings about natural shades, but sustainability involves three pillars, in particular the rebalancing of environmental, ethical and economic concerns. So recognising how local resources that make sensible use of local conditions can support local livelihoods is very much part of the sustainability analysis of any materials I use. Mulling over the merits of natural shades during this make-along has got me thinking about natural shades more generally. As many of you know, I don't just knit, I also sew. And I've been wondering if and how I can extend the use of natural shades into my sewing pursuits. It's becoming easier, thanks to the effort of inspiring wool advocates and explorers to find undyed wool for knitting, but the fabric sector seems to be several steps behind. In many ways, this is quite odd, as for much of mankind's existence, undyed fibres were the norm. 
The fact that it's tricky or challenging to find fabrics made of undyed fibres doesn't mean it's not worth pursuing, so I've started researching some options. Woolen cloth is probably the easiest option. I found a couple of companies in the UK, like Cambrian Wool and Ardalanish, that sell tweed woven from undyed yarn. As this fabric is produced A from British wool, B that is milled in this country, so with higher labour costs, and C in small quantities, it will never be cheap. That said, a tweed garment is a kind of thing that lasts decades. For example, Mr M has a tweed sports jacket that he's had for 30 years. And although it's a little worn and battered, it's still got several decades in it. But what about other fabrics in undyed natural shades? The kind of fabrics that make up the backbone of my wardrobe. It's pretty slim pickings there. In my quest for a natural lining that does not ride up over ties, I have managed to find some undyed fine linen muslin. I've also found a source of robust undyed linen intended for upholstery. Something to bear in mind for blinds and curtains, but what about shirt, dress or trouser fabric? I've been looking into some sources of undyed dress weight linen based in the Baltic States, which is one of the traditional flax growing areas in Europe. Most of them only sell wholesale, but I think I may have found one or two that offer two natural shades of linen by the metre. They don't offer a swatch service, so I'm going to have to take the plunge and order a metre or two to try it out. What about cotton though? I know from my natural dyeing work that it's possible to find undyed cotton in various weights, but that cotton is usually bleached to create a consistent canvas for dye, and bleaching usually means astringent chemicals. It's much harder to find natural shade cotton fabric, even though it exists. Five or six years ago, as I just started to dabble with dressmaking, I spotted some natural shades of cotton in a haberdashery. The bolts of cotton fabric were undyed but available in three or four shades, all quite subtle but very elegant. I particularly remember the muted sage green fabric and a warm sandy colour, almost the colour of a desert rose rock. I'm kicking myself now for not buying any at the time but with my dressmaking skills then I didn't feel I could justify it. Try as I might, I can't find a current stockist of this cotton in the UK or Europe. From my research, though, I've learnt that there are a range of cotton breeds that originated in Southern America that produce different shades of cotton in the cotton bud. They aren't commonly cultivated, presumably as dyeing is easy and cheap these days, but also because these cottons tend to have a lower yield than a lot of modern breeds. It's not clear whether these breeds produce a lower yield due to the inherent properties of the seeds, or whether the seed has just not had the same centuries of breeding and improvement to maximise yield. Anyway, I just wanted to flag that just as there are natural shades of wool, there are also natural shades of cotton, but they're quite hard to find. If any of you have ever seen or used such cotton fabric, I would love to hear from you, and please do share details of stockists if you know of any who sell this cotton. As an aside, I wanted to talk about another reason why I'm a real fan of natural shades, whether it's wool or linen or hopefully one day cotton. And this is very much a personal reason. I find natural shades good for my well-being. I thought I would mention it briefly as some people have asked about it on Instagram or have shared similar experiences. I mentioned earlier how I love colour and how warm autumnal tones can be good for my mood. There are times that I really long for the uplifting effect of a shot of colour. 
Similarly though, I like retreating into the calming effect of natural shades. Living with fibromyalgia, I am constantly trying to limit sensory overload as this is unduly exhausting. Sensory overload may sound a tad dramatic, but that, for me at least, is one of the ways in which this condition wipes me out. My neurotransmitters seem to amplify every sound, light and colour. Things that don't bother others, or others hardly even register, are like an assault on the senses for me, and can add to the permanent sense of exhaustion. Just as I have found turning noise sources down or off helpful... I've also found surrounding myself with a palette that is mostly made up of natural shades helpful to maintain a functioning steady state. In the same way that choosing to turn the radio or CD player on is an intentional choice, so is choosing when to bring colour into my field of vision, at home at least. This doesn't mean that I like colour any less. If anything, I like it more, as a few select colours against the background of natural shades, rather than neutral shades, really pop, and also bring out the different undertones in the natural shades. Also, since embracing natural shades in my wardrobe and increasingly around the home, I am also noticing and appreciating the natural colours of different seasons more and more. I really savour the colours of fresh produce, or seasonal flowers, or young leaves, or autumnal leaves. It's almost as if the calming and mellowing effect of natural shades make me more attuned to the little splashes of colour that surround me at different times of day and the year. Whether that is the variegated greens of the houseplant, or the stunning purples of the buddleia next door, or the colour of a single malt in autumn. If you've introduced natural shades into your making, whether it's wool in knitting and weaving or wood in, say, sculpture or furniture making, I would love to hear what effect it's had on your well-being or your perspective on, on your surroundings. I'm going to have to take a short break because I think that's Dante demanding his second breakfast and he'll only become more vocal if I don't oblige. One of my sewing plans this year was to try my hand at trousers again. I've never been a prolific wearer of trousers, mostly because I struggle to find any that fit properly or are comfortable. In fact, I can only remember about three pairs of trousers that fit me properly in my whole life. Two years ago, I tried to sew a pair, but I wasn't convinced with the result and I just binned the idea. So what has changed? Although I wasn't super active on Instagram for Me Made May, I was reflecting on what handmade items I wear daily and the gaps in my wardrobe. And I realised that based on my current activities and circumstances, I really long for several pairs of trousers. A couple in a robust fabric that I'm not precious about and don't mind getting a bit mucky in the garden whilst out foraging or pottering in the studio. And a smarter pair as a presentable garment that covers my legs so I can avoid wearing tights, which I find increasingly uncomfortable. It's part of that whole sensory overload thing I mentioned earlier. What else has changed? Well, my sewing skills, in particular my fitting skills, have moved on a lot in two years. It's not that I necessarily know how to achieve a perfectly fitting pair of trousers. Rather, it's that I've started to grasp how patterns work and how to manipulate shape so I'm not scared of trying to figure out trickier pattern fitting issues. 
So, armed with some cheap cotton calico, which I can recycle in my craft activities, the closet case, Jenny overalls and trousers pattern, tape measures and rulers, I set about making twelve number one. Once I had measured myself and the pattern pieces, I made a twelve in a size that fit my measurements best. To save on fabric, I made them knee length, as the tricky fitting areas are the waist, hips and crotch. I added the outer waistband, but didn't insert a zip. I simply pinned them closed and then assessed the fit. I stood in front of the mirror in a cream pair of shorts and tried to connect what I knew theoretically from a helpful closet case blog post with what I saw. If the lines at the crotch smile, i.e. radiate upwards, lengthen the crotch. If they are sad lines at the crotch, shorten it. If they are vertical or horizontal, I would need a prominent pubic or flat pubic adjustment, and so on. That's all good and well in theory, but diagnosing what I actually saw was a challenge. So much so that I took a photo and sent it to a fellow knitter sewer friend, and then promptly followed it up with an apology for fear she thought I was being a bit forward for sending a photo of my betwelled crotch. Based on more reading, her feedback, and walking around in the twelve at home, I decided I needed to trim the back seam slightly to allow for my full seat, aka ample rear, and trim the merest hint off the top of the inner leg seams to lengthen the crotch. The twelve was sitting a little baggy in the front, but there was no way I was going to make a flat tummy fitting because, well, I most definitely don't have a flat stomach, and I want to be able to sit down, crouch down, eat a meal, and so forth. So I made the changes to the twelve and transferred them to the pattern. Several weeks later, I moved on to make twelve number two, or what I suppose we'd call a wearable twelve, with some inexpensive denim. The kind of fabric that is totally out of my comfort zone, but which I would definitely not feel precious about getting some mud, clay or paint on. As my size fluctuates depending on pain and activity levels, I tried the twelve on again to check I hadn't changed significantly, and then copied the full length pattern. Actually, I went with a cropped length, but that's just because I have short, stubby legs. Twirl number two came together pretty easily, as it has a side zip, and I also omitted the pockets. I know it's almost sacrilege to say this, but I'm not a particular fan of pockets for various reasons. For one, they are usually on the hips, so emphasise the broadest part of my body. The trousers are perfectly wearable when messing around in the garden or studio, but they are definitely still at the twirl stage. They fit well around the crotch and bum, the tricky areas, so that's great, but they are slightly too big on the waist and hips, and far too full through the legs. I've experienced slightly different sizes from the same pattern before when making the same garments out of different fabrics. The advice with a twirl is to make it in a fabric of similar weight, but I think that's probably only part of the story. The denim I used is a fraction lighter than the calico, but more importantly it has a different weave structure. Whilst calico is a plain weave, the denim is a twill weave. If you look closely at jeans, particularly on the reverse side, you will see a fine diagonal line due to the sequence at which the weft, i.e. the thread that goes into the shuttle and passes horizontally on the loom, is passed over the warp, which is a vertical thread that is attached to both ends of the loom. I hadn't realised how much the weave structure would affect the finished product, but I suppose it makes sense. A twill weave involves the weft thread making fewer over and under passes on each row so there are fewer points of friction. This means the fabric will relax more with wearing compared to other similar weight cottons in plain weave. All of this means that before I move on to the next iteration and make further adjustments to the pattern I need to think about what types of fabric I will typically use for trousers. 
The long-term goal is to add a smart pair of woolen trousers to the wardrobe, but mostly I think I will wear corduroy and cotton twill trousers. My next step is therefore to rework the pattern based on these types of fabrics so I have a happy medium base pattern between more relaxed and more tightly woven fabrics, which I can then easily tweak at the seam allowance depending on a fabric I use. I'm not sure yet if it is a case of going down a size or just being bolder about grading down at the waist. And I also need to address the fullness in the legs. I chose the Jenny pattern on the basis of the two or three pairs of comfortable trousers I've known in my life. As somebody who is widest on the hips, I feel most comfortable in non-clingy trousers, which are wide enough around the ankles. It's partly a physical thing, but partly also psychological. I'm not sure whether I am buying into the conventional wisdom of balancing my shape, or whether I have just been informed by my tastes for the trousers worn in the 30s and 40s. Whilst Catherine Hepburn looks striking in wide-legged woolen trousers, I look rather, well, elephantine because of my short stubby legs. So I'm going to have to play around with the line of the trousers a little. I don't want to turn them into tapered leg ones, but I'm hoping that by taking a couple of inches off the ankle circumference, I can make them less flappy but still create the illusion of a little more length in the legs. So in the coming weekends, I will be rustling up yet another twelve. Twelve making feels a bit like the poor relation in the online sewing community. We typically hear people talk about their finished garments, or their fabric and pattern acquisitions, and less about multiple twelves involved in making a garment. More often than not, we hear, yes, I know I should make a twelve, but... Each to his or her own, of course, and for some people, diving straight in and taking the serendipitous approach really works. But I don't necessarily recognise myself in this predominant narrative, and I suspect there are others online who don't either. So I thought I would talk about why I go through the process of making one or more twelves. It goes without saying that I don't want to waste money or precious fabric with all its environmental impacts on a garment that won't work for me. And yes, I probably do have perfectionist tendencies, and I use that word with some caution, as perfectionism can be paralysing stifling it can stop us getting started. However, one of my reasons for sewing is to produce a small wardrobe of garments that are well made and the best fit and finish that I can achieve based on the current state of my skills is part of that. The main reason why I make 12s though is that I need to make multiple tailoring tweaks to a pattern for the garment to actually fit me, let alone fit me well. Typical fitting areas for me are bodice length, bust, sway back, narrow shoulders slash narrow upper back, full bicep, crotch length, and those are just the ones I currently know about. As the garments I make become more involved, like trousers instead of a skirt, or a sleeve top or dress rather than a camisole or a shift, I need to work out how much to tweak each section and in what order so as not to have an adverse impact on other parts of the pattern. As my skills are improving, there are certain changes that I can make to the pattern pieces based on my experience and key body measurements to reduce the number of trials I need, but I'm still very much in the early stages of this fitting journey. Also, multiple fitting tweaks can seriously change the line of a pattern, so a twirl is really useful for visualising how a pattern will look on me rather than on the envelope. It's also useful for working out what pattern styles or lines and even pattern companies are likely to be the best starting point for my body. 
This 12 fitting process is both fascinating and empowering, but also frustrating, confronting, and at times just plain tedious. Particularly when I see other makers produce three or four garments in the time it takes me to make one. But there is also a great satisfaction in nailing a pattern for my body. When I think about the compliments I've received about my clothes, whether from fellow makers or non-sewers, it is almost always for garments that I have perfected over several twirls and then make in different fabrics. A lot of people don't even realise that I'm just using the same pattern again and again. In some ways, twirl making reminds me of training for a distance race or practising a tricky piece of music or learning a foreign language. Hours of chipping away at mileage, practising tricky bars or repeating tables of conjugations. Covering the same ground again and again. One of the things that makes such efforts more manageable are group runs, orchestra practice or weekly language classes. Slugging through the tricky parts together, encouraging each other through the challenging sections. With this in mind, I was wondering whether anybody fancies joining me with a twirl along to tackle a tricky garment. The idea of a make-along focused on sharing and celebrating the twirl process stems from a conversation I had with Lee of the Lulie podcast about tackling trousers. We were talking about how figuring out the changes needed to get a good fit was particularly tricky. But as not everybody wants to make trousers, we thought a trousers twirl-along would be too limiting, so we settled on the idea of a tricky twirl-along. It would be a very informal, leisurely make-along that are focused most definitely on the twirl process rather than finishing a garment, and taking some of the despair and frustration out of the lonely road of a twirl. As such, languishing half-garments are most definitely welcome. If you fancy joining in, I'll start a thread in the Ravelry group so we can share images of puzzling issues, suggested solutions and details of fitting resources. But also feel free to tag makes with the hashtag tricky along on Instagram. After an unduly hot summer here in the UK, autumn seems to have pitched up early. Not that I'm complaining, of course. Apart from a return to cardigans and hearty food, autumn is also a key foraging period. I started foraging about nine years ago when I moved to this neighbourhood, initially for local food, but in recent years also for the dye pot. This year it seems like we're having a bumper season in my part of the country. I'm not sure if this is because of the heat of the summer, or because the more I get to know my neighbourhood and the crafts I enjoy, from cooking to making, the more I spot nature's abundance. In many ways, one of the key joys of foraging is not just the treasures we bring home, but observing our surroundings and becoming rooted in a physical place. So far this season I've found buddleia flowers, oak galls, hawthorn berries and leaves, bark from fallen birch branches, leaves and shed bark from a eucalyptus tree, all for my dye pot, as well as blackberries for desserts and rose hips for cordials. There are many treasures that I've not picked, as I only have so many hours in the day, or they aren't quite ripe yet, or I just don't care for them. Foraging has definitely become more popular in recent years, which is fabulous, not least of all because it gets us out of the house and moving, which is always a mood booster. Also, foraging involves walking, clambering, stretching, squatting, bouncing, which is the kind of gym-free functional exercise I like. 
Several people on Instagram have asked me if I could recommend a good book for getting started with foraging. I like Richard Maybe's Food for Free, and I also use Alice Fowler's A Thrifty Forager, as well as a good local wildflower guide. I would, however, recommend that if you want to start foraging, you look for a publication by a local author, whether that is an author from your country or from your specific region. It's not just that plants can vary from country to country, it's also that while similar plants may be available in different regions, their growing season may depend on local weather patterns or light levels. Another key issue is that the laws and bylaws covering access to land and collecting flora are likely to vary from country to country, even from state to state. For example, while some of the laws relating to foraging are the same across the UK, rules about access to land are different in England and Wales compared to Scotland. Any good book or online resource, for example, britishlocalfood.com for the UK, will include local rules based on the law at the time of publishing, as well as general guidelines to avoid plundering the shared abundance, damaging plants so they can't reproduce, or stripping plants from the nectar and fruit that other animals rely on for their survival. A couple of principles of good foraging practice is to only take a fair share and make sure you then use it, and to share the craft, whether that is share what we make with forage flora, or to share the know-how relating to foraging. Whenever I make preserves from forage berries, I always share a couple of jars, whether with friends or just people in the neighbourhood, and I also see sharing on social media as a way of spreading knowledge related to this craft. Foraging has certainly added another dimension to my making, both through rooting me in place, but also community, and it has produced some wonderfully eccentric dimensions to my life. For example, recently I received a parcel of reeds through the post that a friend had foraged locally to her for her dye pot, and she wanted to share them with me so I could experiment too. You simply can't buy these kinds of moments. Is foraging part of your making practice? If so, I'd love to hear about where you forage, what you typically find, and what you make with nature's bounty. To finish up, I'd like to share a couple of inspiring gems. I've particularly enjoyed discovering engaged weaving on Instagram. James is a spinner and weaver based in Colorado and has recently embarked on natural dyeing too. What I love most about his posts though are his musings on the slowness of his making and how through his making he is gaining insights into himself, not just as a person and a maker in his own right, but as a living embodiment of society, landscape, cultural tradition and even human evolution. If you've not come across Engaged Weaving yet, do check out his Instagram feed and read his musings. A very good starting point is his post of the 2nd of September, inspired by a woven piece called Those Receding Waves. My second recommendation is a podcast called Real Talk, spelt apostrophe R-I-A-L. The host, Anna Plozowski, is a material scientist and engineer who explores materials of all kind. That may not sound like a recipe for fun, but in her decidedly unstuffy podcast, she has conversations about different materials with a practitioner in that particular material. For example, she discussed cotton with an embroidery artist, steel with a blacksmith and clay with a potter, but she also talked lime with an archaeologist. 
The pairing of scientist and a hands-on practitioner provides fascinating insights into materials that are part and parcel of our life and that we don't necessarily give a second thought. And there are some intriguing materials in the back catalogue, including, would you believe it, chocolate. On that tasty note, I think I will call it a day for this month. I'll just mention that if you are in the UK and are going to Yarndale, I shall be there on Saturday. So if you see me, please do stop me to say hi and have a chat, or drop me a message and we can arrange to meet up for a chat over tea and cake. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy lots of pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be. 